Hi, I'm Josina, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist, and I just might start listening to podcasts now. Hey, it's Gabe, and this week on Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist, we've got an awesome guest who's going to talk about food and drinks and fruit and cheese And I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. It's really just, it's excellent. I'm going to go get a snack. Hello, everybody. You might realize that this is not Amanda starting off this episode, it's Gabe. And I know that I don't usually start off the episodes because that's usually Amanda's job. Amanda actually had a family emergency, so for today, you get me, you get Idan, and you get our new friend, Jill. Hello, Jill! Hello! We are so excited to bring you on to the show to discuss this week's Torah portion, Kitavo. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Why are you here? No time listener, first time caller. This is actually my very first podcast ever. I've never even listened to one before. But don't take that to mean that I'm a Luddite. I actually briefly ran a Jewish tech firm a few years back. A wonderful little blip in an otherwise very food and Jewish-centric career. I started off at Jewish summer camp in Wisconsin, a very prominent URJ camp. And was exposed to the land and a couple of units that actually have their own gardens and goats and chickens. And it really kind of laid this foundation without me even really knowing it as to where I have, you know, wandered through the various paths of my life. So I started cooking when I was probably around 12. The bakery near where I grew up in Illinois shut down and I couldn't find a decent eclair. And I mean like a real eclair with the pat of shoe piped in with the vanilla custard, right? Not whipped cream, not cut in half. And with the chocolate ganache on top, nothing with this canned buttercream junk. Just no. So I attempted, with my mother's joy of cooking, cookbook to make eclairs. And I failed miserably. And I cried. And I made a mess of the kitchen. And I didn't try it for a whole nother year. And uh, I burnt the pot of shoe, but I didn't cry this time. I just made it again. And uh, it was less messy than the time before. And I had eclairs at the end. And then by the time I was 15, uh, you would have no idea that I had made eclairs, except for the fact that there were two dozen in the refrigerator when you opened the door. So that's kind of how I got started uh, in my early years. I couldn't find a decent eclair, so I made it. Kind of an ethos, you know, like there isn't this thing that's happening, so I'm going to do it. It's kind of been a mantra in my life. I went to culinary school nights and weekends while I got my bachelor's degree in psychology. And... I started working in fine dining in and around Chicago and pretty quickly learned about all the really gross, nasty, not fun parts of our agricultural food system and our restaurant systems and food service in general and how oppressive and polluting 
and just well, <laughs> so many bad things about it. When the reason why I got into food and cooking was to put love and nourishment into what I was doing. So to get into a professional kitchen and to feel like I was in junior high, seeing all of this nasty things that violated all the ethos that I had grown up learning about, both just in general in life, but then as a Jewish person. And I almost completely left food after that. And then my childhood rabbi, I went to her for guidance. And she's like, you know, I think you might like this program called Adama which is a, sounds like you know what it is, Gabe. It's a three-month Jewish farming fellowship in Connecticut that dares to live an agricultural-based Jewish life that balances out, you know, the wonderfulness that is food and can be food and the community aspects of food with the social justice aspects of what it means to grow food and pay those people a living wage and what it's like to labor in a field and what it means to check your own animals and to make your own pickles. And thank goodness for her and for Adama and Shamu and Adam Berman and all the wonderful people, shout out, who were instrumental in the creation of that program. So I did that. And I had everything I wanted except for family, which was back in the Midwest. So I came back to the Midwest. And I actually interned on a farm in central Illinois called Henry's Farm which is an incredible 40-acre farm, over 650 different varieties of organic heirloom vegetables, yeah, specializing in Japanese vegetables. If you haven't been to the Evanston Farmer's Market, you got to go. I know it's on a Saturday. This was my Shabbos practice for many years, was working this Farmer's Market stand. I felt I was doing a mitzvah, connecting the wonderful bounty and nourishment from this land and from this family to the greater you know, Chicago North Shore area. And so that, for a very long time, when I wasn't in a Jewish community like Adama, was my Jewish practice, even though it was Shabbat and we were exchanging money and all the things that you technically aren't supposed to do on Shabbat. But it's about the Kavanah, not necessarily the Kebab, the spiritual aspect of it all. I feel like I'm getting long-winded, but I'm almost done, I promise. So that was great, but it didn't have the Jewish community that I wanted, right? So I was like hopping back and forth between Hazon and Adama on the East Coast and back on the West Coast when I miss my family. And my best friend, Anne, finally said, Jill, shut up and do something about it, right? The ethos of my life. There isn't a thing. Okay, I guess I'll do it. So my friend, Anne, my other friend, Suzanne, and myself started a wonderful organization called The Gone Project, which at the time I didn't realize many people thought was a preschool because apparently that's what gone means to most people. To me and to my friends, it literally meant the garden project. We were very fortunate to get hooked up with Marty Levine, who at the time was the director of the JCCs. And he got us hooked up with a quarter acre in West Rogers Park. And I got to tell you, for this non-observant Jew doing this weird hippie Jewish farm thing in a very traditional Orthodox part of town, the minute those chickens were on site, all of the Orthodox families in the neighborhood were coming out. What is this? What are you doing? And we got to start working on healing that relationship. You know, there's a lot of insecurity and anxiety around Kashrut and the land and bugs specifically. And so we were able to kind of reconnect with soil and bugs are our friends and all those wonderful things. And we did that for about four years. It was wonderful. Unfortunately, there's a funding gap between startups and $1.5 million organizations. And we fell right in that gap. 
So that was the Gan project. I took a pretty weird pivot into that Jewish tech firm thing I mentioned earlier. We were trying to connect the Jewish community through mobile apps. It didn't quite take, it's fine. And, uh, and then I ended up doing a pretty hard pivot into cheese. Yeah, I know. I know. Everyone's shaking their heads for those of you at home. Cheese, cheese. We have wonderful holidays that promote cheese, that talk about cheese, that are rooted in dairy and the flowing of spring lambs and new milk and all those wonderful things around Shavuot. And uh, I was fortunate. I happened in on, and actually they just closed this weekend, Cowgirl Creamery in Point Ray Station closed their original retail location, which at the time, about seven years ago, they had a little itty bitty sign in the window that said, we're hiring. And I said, for what? And I moved there 10 days later with a job. <laughs> and I started to work with the likes of Albert Strauss, who is from a Jewish family that settled in the area when his father immigrated after World War II, started dairy farming, and was the first organic dairy west of the Mississippi. These are the likes of people that I've been working with. And while it has been wonderful and heavy in the practical applications of living your values of sustainability and agriculture, Jewish where I can get it, <laughs> that's the land and the world that I've been in. So I was at Cowgirl for seven years. I did a stint last year at Jasper Hill, and I literally just moved today to Dodgeville, Wisconsin, which is in the Driftless region here. And I'm working for a wonderful cheesemaker, Andy Hatch, who makes only two cheeses on his land. And my first day is tomorrow. Amazing. Well, Mazal Tov and, you know, Behatzlacha on the new job. Thank you. You know, there were so many moments during your story that either I or Idan kind of like our ears perked up like, oh, I know what that is. Anytime you talked about anything in the Chicago area or the Midwest in general, Idan went, oh, I'm from there or I've lived there. And when you talked about Adama, I said, oh, I was just at Isabella Friedman for HUC's Kala. So we have a lot of like connections and overlapping paths. I'm also thinking about, you know, kind of the other ways in which our lives seem to intersect, not necessarily in place or time, but in theme. You know, my mother was a cook for a very long time. She worked in the restaurant industry, in the hospitality industry. She was a caterer for a while. And she really taught me to not only like cook food, you know, I remember the first time she taught me to like cook scrambled eggs. And that was like the first thing I ever made but also how to like really enjoy and appreciate food. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation with you. But I just have to say, to like start your culinary journey on Padashu, like what that's an insane thing. I don't know if people are aware, if listeners are aware of how ridiculous that is. That's like, oh, I'm going to start skiing and I'm going to start with the, you know, Black Diamond, or, you know, I'm going to try baseball. Let me like just pull into Yankee Stadium. Let's see what happens. That's phenomenal. Crazy, but phenomenal. So anyway, we're super excited to get into this conversation. Oh, one last thing. Because you said cheese, I have to mention it. One of my favorite hapax legomena, which is a word that only appears once in the entire Tanakh, in the entire Bible, one of my favorites is, of course, givina, the modern Hebrew word for cheese, 
only appears once in the entire Hebrew Bible, and that is in the book of Job. So there's your fun fact. Let's get started. It's that time again. We're reading Parashat Ki Tavo this week, and we need a distilled Parsha summary so we know what's going on before we talk about it. So, first off, let's say Boker Tov to some Bikurim. I thought that was a funny play on words, but there's a very solid chance that I'm not nearly as funny as I think I am. The Bikurim are the first fruits to be harvested in a given season, and they don't belong to you, they belong to God. So bring those first fruits to a land that God will show you and give it to the priests who will put them before an altar. Hey, how did we get here? My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt and settled there with few numbers, and there he became a great and mighty nation. The Egyptians were wicked to us and oppressed us. They put upon us heavy labor. We cried out to the Eternal One, God of our ancestors. The Eternal One heard our voices and saw our oppression and our labor and our distress. The Eternal One delivered us from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and a heavy pour, and with great tremendousness, by signs and wonders. We came to this place. God gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's Parashat, all of them? I think the Torah might be able to teach us a lot about making distilled Parsha summaries. Anyway, give the priests the fruit, bow before God, and enjoy the harvest with the Levites and strangers. Also, every third year, give a tenth of your harvest to the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Reminder, you are God's chosen people. Another reminder, God likes being worshipped, so once you're in the land, set up some large stones and inscribe the teachings onto them. Also, build an altar also inscribed with the teachings. Then the Levites curse some people who don't follow the laws. Reminder, follow the laws. With all that cursing, who's getting blessed? You. In the city and the country, your human kids, goat kids, harvest bread, military, all of it. You'll be the head and not the tail, on top, not on bottom, but only if you do the things you're supposed to do. Otherwise, curses like birds of prey, wild beasts, and hemorrhoids will descend upon you. I'll stick with the blessings. Thanks. So, you've seen the good and the bad, the blessing and the curses, the miracles and the plagues. Trust and believe in God, observe the covenant, and, again, do what God says. And that's Parashat Ki Tavo. Yashar Koach. <laughs> that's a feat. <laughs> <laughs> this is a juicy one. All right, so Jill... I'm so excited to talk to you about your journey. It's really clearly a, not a straight line. There have been a lot of twists and turns, but it all relates. There's clearly some through lines there, whether it's a love of food or an appreciation for the land or an appreciation of the ethics behind food and land, or as you said, hey, I see something missing. I'm going to fill in the gap. I'm going to do something about it. So I'm curious if you have, I mean, you kind of said it right there, but I'm wondering if there are any values that you can point to as, you know, a through line of your kind of narrative arc so far. Oh, through line. Well, I like to consider myself a collector of skill sets, a jewel of all trades, if you will. And it has, it's been a nice, windy, varied, diversified path of which I'm completely grateful for. And I think the Judaism that I was raised on, coming from a family uh, very heavily steeped professionally in the law, 
justice was a huge, huge focal point of my everyday life, more than I ever realized when I was younger. It was just the way my parents raised me and my grandparents were through their actions, through letting us decide for ourselves, you know, if Judaism was going to be the thing we wanted to make a part of our life, impressing upon us the importance of the tenets of tikkun olam. And even if they weren't using those words, you know, I grew up in the reform movement before when it was like Jewish light kind of idea before they started infusing and embracing a lot of, you know, more Hebrew and traditions that I think a lot of people in the reform movement get now that are coming up through the ranks. You know, we just knew that you took care of people in your community. You took care of people that didn't have all of the advantages that you had, that the things that you have are a privilege and you take care of them and you take care of each other. So not just having those concepts kind of is a core tenant of how I was raised. They really have surprisingly to me come up in my professional life in very profound ways that I did not expect. So as I think many people do, you know, coming out of high school and into college and into their adult selves and beings, it can be a very disenchanting time to be exposed to the world. You know, I remember at one point, naively thinking that I could be the member of the first generation that never saw war. In the 90s, that was kind of the paintbrush. Everything was brushed with, brushed with colorblindness, which we now know was such a misstep in terms of being able to understand other people's oppressions and experiences in life. And I just, I got so disenchanted. And then in my professional life, Again, I mentioned earlier in kind of introducing myself in my chosen culinary field, just seeing the environmental degradation, the oppression of workers, the conditions that animals are kept in, the way that I was being treated in a kitchen, and the misogyny, the sexual harassment, the 15-hour workdays, all the things just got me to the point where I was like, there is no God. <laughs> if there were, none of this would be happening. I give up on all of this. I'm turning away from this. And, but I still need guidance. And so I went to my rabbi, I mentioned, and I was like, how do you reconcile all of these? She's like, I don't have the answers. Try this program. <laughs> I was like, she did a great job. So she put me in the direction of Adama. And so I was accepted into the program and I'm in the fields and we are weeding the tomato plants and we are harvesting and we're, you know, picking the suckers off of in between. And I'm looking at this plant, this beautiful plant that's now taller than I am. And I'm five foot ten. <laughs> so that's pretty tall. And, you know, had seen, you know, this was a seed that we put in the soil, that we transplanted, that we watered, that we tended. And then, like, the seed did this miraculous thing. It went from a seed and it turned into a tomato. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm still not sure about God, but damned if I don't believe in the tomato. <laughs> That's miraculous. And it kind of brought me back into it. I was like, okay, I think I'm in the right place for this. I think that this is a place that's going to be able to take all of the questions that I have about why we're here, why we do the things we do, why the way the world is, to put it back through this lens of my upbringing and my childhood and my Judaism and to come out on the other side with a way to engage in the world that could help balance a lot of the things that we see 
in specifically in that lens of tikkun olam in this instance, of seeing what's broken and bringing it back together to a place of repair. And it might not look the same way it did before, but someone's going to recognize it. And then the next generation is going to recognize that. And it's going to keep going. And we're going to work towards that together, that healing, that repair. You know, what I love about that story is that sometimes we get really caught up in trying to find these like proofs of God, these, you know, miraculous, huge parting of the seas and the freeing of captives and the end of war and the end of hunger. And we never, you know, stop to smell the roses, but look at the tomato plant and say, like, that's a miracle, too. There's something really incredible about that. I learned from a rabbi back when I was in high school, Rabbi Alan Ullman, who was teaching about the episode of Moses encountering the burning bush. And this isn't in this week's Torah portion. I'm going off on a tangent, but we're going to go there. And Rabbi Ullman talked to us about how there are brush fires. Like sometimes things catch fire in the desert. It's hot. It's dry. That happens. So really, the miracle wasn't that, you know, God made a bush catch fire because that happens. The miracle is that Moses took the time to notice that something was different, that something was miraculous. So I can really appreciate saying, you know, we could just call this a tomato and cut it up and put it on a sandwich, and that'd be perfectly fine. But we can also see something miraculous there. We can also see something really incredible. I'm curious how we might be able to connect that to this week's Torah portion, particularly through the lens of like the first fruits, the harvest. We're celebrating, you know, that we get this bountiful harvest every year. How do you react to that as somebody who has interacted with and worked with and grown food? Yeah, we actually, back when the Gan Project was operating, we actually did a, called it Chag Habikurim, we did a first fruits harvest festival where, you know, we built a little altar and we talked about what it meant to back in the, you know, when we were pilgrims, right? We made pilgrimage to the temple to make these offerings. And this was, you know, where a lot of people would come and gather in one space. And there was definitely seat swapping happening there, right? Like the diversification and fortification of our food stores. We're talking about a people whose entire livelihood and being is written in the language of agriculture. So literally, like we read it now and it feels like it's an analogy or it's a like one of Aesop's fables, but like, no, this is legit. Like, if your ox, if your worst enemy's oxen is falling under the weight of its load, you are obliged to help it. <laughs> you know, like you have to go and help your worst enemy save its ox because that ox provides a livelihood and it turns up soil, which helps to irrigate and aerate and do all these things that their literal lives depend on. So to then say to those people, and that first bit of it, or this one-tenth of it, or whatever falls to the ground, right? But specifically in this Parsha, that first bit of it isn't yours. It's your communities. It's for something more than yourself. And that's just to set up the entire system to say, guess what? We have a responsibility to each other. And we're going to do it in the only way we know how right now, which is with the literal fruits of our labor. I mean... Mind blown. 
you know, it occurs to me, and I've talked about this on the podcast a few times, but it occurs to me that the working of land in order to get fruit, the need to till the soil and to sow and to reap and to do all of these things was actually, in Torah, originally a punishment that Adam, when banished from the Garden of Eden, part of the curse was you're going to have to work the land in order to get your food and you're going to encounter thorns and thistles and dry land and all of these terrible things. And that's part of your punishment. That's part of what it means to be a human outside of paradise. And so there's something interesting there that, you know, we we're now talking about like we look at this growing tomato and we say, wow, this is a miracle. But also, in order to grow that tomato, there was a lot of hard work there. Like, that's difficult to do. Some of my favorite phrases I didn't know were agricultural like catchphrases until I started working in agriculture. Hard row to hoe, right? A hard row to hoe is like when you're working on something and it's very challenging. No, it literally means I was taking this garden hoe and I was trying to hoe through this clay-like soil and it was really hard that was a hard row to hoe my other one bumper crop right a bumper crop when something is in abundance right shefa abundance it literally means that there's so much weight on the back of your truck that the bumper bottoms out when you're driving over a hump a bump in the road bumper crop i could think of like eight more these are great i love these and i think they're you know kind of the secular version of like what we're talking about here in terms of like when we when you said like to reap and to sow you know, we think of that in, in beautiful, lovely, even folk songy, right? Terms like to everything, turn, turn, there's a season. These are things we can literally engage in in a way that so much of our history and ancestry we can't do anymore. We want to know why our ancestors told us that it's important that you're feeding the fatherless, the widow, the stranger in your midst. Like, do it. Take an acre of land, put all of your hard sweat and labor into it, and take that first bit, you don't touch it. It's not yours. You give it away. And now you see how precious that is. That's something we can still do to connect to our history, to connect to our ancestors. It sounds like that's something that's not just a, I don't know, not just a connection to our ancestors. Like a, It doesn't feel like just something we can do to feel more Jewish. It sounds like something that we do and feel more connected to humanity as a whole. Oh, yeah, you do that, you give it away, and now you tell me $15 an hour is too much to pay somebody doing that type of work without health benefits. Yeah, like this is one of those things that can bridge that gap between the past, the present, and the future. It almost reminds me of those things that we say, you know, the great equalizers. Everybody needs to stand in line at the DMV, and everybody needs to eat. Everybody needs to get that physical sustenance. It's our base animal kind of need. You know, you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like we're at the bottom of the pyramid. People need food. And so I'm thinking about like how this connects to social justice. And, you know, we talked about it a little of like, you know, it the food's not yours. You need to feed the orphan and the stranger and the widow and all of these people and the Levites who don't have land. We need to feed all of these people. But I'm curious how we connect, you know, this idea of, as you said, tikkun olam, this idea of repairing the world, this idea of justice, of tzedek, with food, which is just such a base need. 
Yeah, it is. And I think one of the things that I think frustrates me about kind of the superficial nature of a lot of our quote unquote environmental justice work as a community or at large is the idea that access to healthy, safe, nutritious foods is a starting point. That's where we need to focus. Or the in at Rosh Hashanah, out at Yom Kippur food drives that we have, right? Like that's a good deed. That's a mitzvah, right? Like that's, frankly, that's busy work. The things that really, and Kitov touches on this, you know, Kitov touches on the idea of land sovereignty, right? And specifically, you know, agriculturally and in Parsha and the Torah, we're talking about the land of Israel. But the idea of land sovereignty is very alive. And in the daily discussions that are happening right now, when we talk about Native and Indigenous people, whose territory we are entirely upon right now. And but even the land sovereignty in the reservations where they are now and trying to be able to manage the land and the resources according to their own traditions and ways to do that. And then African-American and other people of color who have been redlined out of entire neighborhoods who aren't able to get financing to buy a house or to buy land if they want to you know, make a living off the land. And so the idea of being able to see the very applicable modern day issues that these allude to, you know, we're talking about, you know, you mentioned that Maslow's hierarchy, that food is a base need. Well, housing security is a base need, right? Water is a base need. Hello, story of Exodus. We couldn't, you know, after we left Israel, we were dwelling just outside the land. A lot of people wanted to go back. There's food there. There's water there. There's shelter there, right? So they had the sukkah, right? Which was this impermanent housing structure that was that, you know, we kind of live in that blows over if it's too windy, right? That's the shelter that we have. We've got mana, right? But we still couldn't leave until what happens? Miriam gets the water. Okay. Food, housing, water. Those are the three things that make it possible for then the wandering for 40 years to happen, right? So water rights, land sovereignty, all of these issues are still issues that we're dealing with today in modern times. And so my challenge that I have when I go to something that's billed as a social justice workshop or an environmental justice workshop, and they're making sauerkraut, which is wonderful, and I love sauerkraut, and it's so good for you, but that's what I was doing when I was 20-something, and I'm 40. Like, is this, we're still here? Like, <laughs> this is still where we're at? Where is the coalition with the an organization like Levejo in Chicago, the little village, which fought and won the closing down of the coal ash plants in their neighborhood that were causing incredible rates of asthma. And the recycling incinerator in the same part of town, talk about environmental racism, right? And what do they do now? They fought those battles, they won those campaigns, and they have an incredible network of organic growing spaces throughout their schools and community garden areas so that they can feed themselves in their communities. We need to be making those connections as a community, as congregations, as prayer groups, you know, as however formal and informal those structures are, as our rabbinical schools and our chavruta studies. Yes, we want to learn how to make sauerkraut. Yes, we want to get into the nitty gritty of the root of a particular word in the Parsha of Kitov that's telling us about, you know, we need to then take that group of people and turn them out to a march about predatory lending, right? I could go on tangents. <laughs>
But yeah, there's so much about those three basic things, food, housing, water. They're in our stories, they're in our daily lives, and they're the things that people are still fighting for as we speak. Welcome to Midrashic Mixology, my personal favorite segment. Okay, maybe not my favorite because I do really like the conversations that we have, but it's a pretty fun one. So for Parashat Kitavo, we proudly present the Biku Rimon. What's a Rimon? It's a pomegranate. What's a pomegranate? A fruit. So for a drink of Biku Rim, first fruits, we present the Bikuri Moan. We'll start by making a pomegranate syrup or something like that. We'll take equal parts warm water, pomegranate juice, and honey in a jar and shake it up until the honey is fully dissolved. The pomegranates remind us of all those laws, and the honey reminds us of our reward of living in the land of milk and honey. You're going to take a half ounce of syrup with a half ounce of lemon for the tithes and one ounce of pink grapefruit juice for those aforementioned first fruits in a cocktail shaker. Add in one and a half ounces of vodka and shake until well chilled. Pour over crushed ice in a double rocks glass and garnish with a grapefruit slice and a sprig of rosemary. For a non-alcoholic version, omit the vodka and top with club soda after you shake and pour. A toast to the harvest, Lechaim. Okay, are you ready for my cheese pairing? I'm so ready for your cheese pairing. So the American artisan cheese world is having its bit of a moment. It recently took hold the best in world cheese two years ago, just before the pandemic. And it was a blue cheese coming out of Oregon called Rogue River Blue. Wow. Yeah. Think about when, so to put this on par with like how major of a deal this is, that an American blue cheese took home the best cheese in the world. Yes, you do love blue cheese, Edon. Think of this as when American winemakers started putting their wines up in the world for competition blind, right? So that there wasn't the bias and they started taking home awards and like shocking the industry and doing all those sorts of things. This wasn't quite as drastic as that, but it's a very big moment for artisan cheese production coming out of America. And just the things that you were describing in your drink, the pomegranate syrup and the honey specifically, I don't know if you've ever paired honey with blue cheese. It is so yummy. So you find yourself a raw local honey and a slice of Rogue River Blue, and you drizzle that, a little bit of the honey over that blue cheese, and maybe you get a little bit of chocolate, and you get your cocktail shaker out. That was me with my sound effects. And you shake up that shaker, and you pour that little aperitif there, and you just go to town. And I think it's gonna be a great pairing. If blue cheese isn't your bag, I say, too bad, eat this cheese. It will change your mind about what a blue cheese is. Um, <laughs> otherwise, my other idea is to go with a nice bloomy rind sheep milk cheese. So sheep milk cheese is, so think of the three main animals that we produce cheese with in this country, because you can do it with other besides cows, goats, and sheep. Cows produce the largest volume of milk, fluid milk, but the least amount of cheese 
that comes out of that product once it is made. All of that water is expelled in the whey. Next is goat. So you get lower amount of volume of milk from the animal, right? We all know a goat is smaller than a cow, unless you've got one of those little baby cows. And then, but you get more yielded from that volume of milk, which is why goat milk is more expensive. And then you have sheep milk, which has the lowest volume of the three in terms of what's being produced per animal in terms of liters or gallons, but you get the highest amount of yield, which means you're getting all of that rich, creamy butter fat that's coming in. And then that vodka is going to cut straight through it and cleanse your palate. Oh, so good. Just a beautiful bloomy rind sheep milk cheese would, I think, be very nice if you wanted something on the lighter end or if the blue feels a little too extreme for you. But again, I don't care. Do it. Eat the blue. I've spent so much of my adult life trying to convince my wife to eat, I don't know what the industry term is, I was going to say almost like discolored, moldy cheeses, stinky cheeses, because I was raised, the smellier the cheese, the better it'll be. You were raised right, my friend. Thank you. I, that validation is great to hear. <laughs> but I mean, actually, I will say I've gotten her into blue cheese lately. She still stands by not liking gorgonzola, but one day maybe. I can understand that. Gorgonzola can be a very affronting if that is one of your first, and I explain this to a lot of people in my cheese career. You know, in the American and cheese world, we kind of went to the two extremes. We went super creamy, buttery, bland, right? Mild flavor. Although a true brie is actually quite robust in both odor and taste. But the triple cream that we're thinking of, like the cowgirl mountain, people are like, I hate brie. I love this cheese. It's like, that's because it's not a true brie. It's actually a Gouda recipe that was adapted to be in a soft format, a triple cream format. And so everyone's like, oh, that's why. And so that technique yielded that one cheese. So I know we're getting on the cheese tangent. I love it. Um, all the things that you do to the milk is going to help, you know, influence the flavor and the texture of the cheese that you're doing. So good gateway blue cheeses. One, you try the best in the world and you're going to like it, even if blue cheese isn't your favorite, because it's literally the best in the world. And two, there's a wonderful blue cheese that's my year-round go-to. So Rogue River Blue is seasonal, mind you. It's a fall cheese. It comes out right around Thanksgiving, the fall equinox, actually. And then it goes until it's gone, right? Talk about first fruits. That fall equinox is like, Wah! Rogue River season. But year-round, my go-to gateway blue cheese is Bay Blue by Point Red Farmstead Creamery. It's more balanced and nutty in that pasteurized flavor, you know, pasteurizing balances out that astringent that you get in like a gorgonzola or a raw milk blue, right? So that pasteurization process helps to balance that out. And when people came into the counter when I was working, you know, as a cheesemonger, and they'd be like, oh, I don't like blue cheese. I was like, oh, great, try this. And without fail, if it was one of these two cheeses, they were grabbing one of the wedges to take with them, right? But we kind of stuck to those two extremes. There was blue cheese and there was you know, triple cream, mild, creamy, you know, white cheese and cheddar, <laughs> right? You have the international cheeses, you have Gruyere, you have, you know, Parmesan. Thank a wheel of Parmesan, by the way, for why we have raw milk cheese at all in this country, because they were going to ban all raw milk cheeses, but try to take Parmesan away from America and see what happens. So thank a wheel of Parmesan, because it is legally only made with raw milk. Americans love their Parmesan, I must say. I know that's why we have any raw milk cheese in this country, period. There would have been riots. It would have been like the Boston Tea Party all over again. Like, 
we would have revolted. It would have been a revolt. I will say there were some cottage cheese protests in Israel. I'm not sure we're all aware of the cottage cheese protests, but... What is this? Oh, so cottage cheese is a big staple in Israel. I think just about anybody who's lived in Israel for an extended period of time can attest to cottage cheese both being ubiquitous and just better, partially because it's like full fat, no holds barred, like it is excellent. It's just fantastic. Like in America, if I get cottage cheese, which I don't do often, but if I do, like I'll put seasoned salt in it and it'll like I need like something else in it. You don't need anything. It's just amazing. But anyway, it's such a staple that when there was an economic downturn and the price of cottage cheese got too high, that became the symbol of just an exorbitant cost of living. The cost of living was too high. And the thing they pointed to, the cottage cheese is too expensive. So anyway, we're on a big tangent here. I feel like I've never learned more about dairy products and also been like more hungry during one of these recordings. This is like really fantastic. Well, the thing is, Gabe, is while I'm known as Farmer Jill to many, and I have been in the Jewish food and farming world for quite some time, there is a little bit of overlap in both my non-Jewish cheese world and the Jewish food world where this very small Venn diagram of overlap, where I'm a little bit famous. So um, I had the privilege of attending something called the Cheesemonger Invitational, which if you haven't been, you absolutely need to go. It usually happens right before the fancy food show. It's billed as a cheese rave. And uh, for the day or two before this cheese rave, it's all cheese makers from all over the world, farmers, ranchers from all over the world, come in and sit at a round table with cheese mongers, right? The people who literally sell their product to the masses with no filter, no barrier. And they're talking about anything under the sun that you have questions about their product, about their land management, about what drives them. Gruyere brought the salt miners, the people who literally mine the salt for the cheese that is Gruyere, came and did a roundtable education session with the participants of, of CMI. Then there's a whole competition. You ask for the perfect pairing. This is where this comes from, where you do a perfect pairing, a perfect bite, and a perfect slate, where you have to pair an assigned cheese with a perfect beverage. You have to design a cheese slate around it, and you have to create like a little appetizer. Anyways, the year I did it, I decided that the people that I had seen that had the most fun had some sort of hook, some sort of pitch. Well, what am I if not a product of the Jewish camping world, right? So I was going to be Cheese Camp Director Jill, and I did the whole bit. I had a clipboard that said, see my packing list, cheese, knives, guitar, you know, ruach, spirit, like all the things on it. I wrote a parody song, a cheese parody song to the Indigo Girls, Galileo, this whole thing. I leaned hard into that camping theme. It was the first time I had done it. People do this for years. And they've never gotten on stage in the sixth finalists. And somehow I won the thing. <laughs> I know, right? So <laughs> this is where that very slight for like four months after that 2019 Cheesemonger Invitational, 
I became quite famous in this little overlap of Jewish foodies and curd nerds. And I did like a couple of articles with different publications and uh, phone interviews. And like, it was a big deal for a little, for just a little while. I mean, it's still a big deal to me. But uh, we come by that tangent, honestly. I, I don't know how to tease the two apart. You know, we might not have used a whole lot of Jewish lingo during that cheese tangent we were on. But man, if it doesn't come from the same place inside of me. So uh, yeah, to Barty, mic drop. I love everything about that. I feel like I need a bucket of lactate, but it really just Mazaltov on your win. I love it. Congratulations to Azrui by like transitive property, I guess. That's fantastic. Really, just I love everything about that. I actually, they featured me in the alumni newsletter. <laughs> of course they did. Why? That's like. That is the pinnacle of success right there. That is incredible. After that one, <laughs> I know. Of all the things I did, and I did interviews with like some really wonderful, but like mockers of the cheese world, right? Like when Asruri came calling for that alumni piece, oh, that was it. I had made it. You know, I will say Amanda and I met and actually Idan, we met also when we were living in Israel for a year. We were living in Jerusalem, and my favorite meal that I had in Jerusalem, and I'm pretty sure the favorite meal I've like ever had in my life, is a sandwich from Cohen's Deli, which is a misnomer because it's definitely not a deli, and I'm pretty sure the guy who owns it isn't named Cohen, but like it doesn't matter. And it's a cafe, they have coffee, and they have cheese, and like they import fancy cheeses. It's incredible. And they make a sandwich where they literally they have a whole baguettes, like, you know, big baguettes. They cut it in half and slice it down the middle. And so the sandwich is a full half baguette. And inside the sandwich, Nice Israeli olive oil, salt and pepper, the cheese of your choice. I always got the brie and it was like real stinky brie, like excellent stuff, like the real stuff with fresh parsley and fresh, you know, Israeli tomatoes and cucumbers and a little red onion. And oh, my God, just every bite. Oh, mamash is so good. I miss that sandwich more than I miss, like, some humans that I know. I love that sandwich so much. So offended you never took me there. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to go back. <laughs> right after we hit this cheese convention, we'll sneak in. No need to sneak. They sell tickets. Oh, incredible. Idan, we're going. It's like 35 or 40 bucks. All you can eat. Cheese, charcuterie, jams, jellies, accoutrement, fully catered. Beer, wine, uh, aperitifs, everything. Do it. Do it. New York. They do one in New York. They do one in San Francisco. They did one in Chicago. They're due to do a master's in the next couple of years, which is once you win, you can't compete anymore. But every couple of years, they do a master's competition for the people who have won. And they get to compete against each other. And the top two people there, they then go to Europe. And there's a world cheesemongering competition in Europe. And the last time we went, I believe we placed fourth and seventh, which is placing anywhere over the top 10 as Americans. Again, this is a big deal. This is a big avenue. I don't think I've ever been prouder to be an American. So shout out to Mr. Moo. Adam is just phenomenal with this idea that just started. He just 
wanted to hang out with a bunch of his friends. The coolest people he knew were cheesemongers. And wouldn't it be fun if we took the mundane stuff of every day, like cutting cheese to a quarter pound and wrapping it, but like fun and make a competition. Oh, I can't believe I haven't said this yet. What he does, Adam Moskowitz as well, basically the cheese world is kind of like Judaism. There's this huge diaspora, right? Most cheese shops and producers are like one and two person operations. Like I have the very unique experience at Cowgirl where, you know, we had a very deep bench of cheese professionals working there. Usually it's the owner and maybe a part-time person and they're stuck behind the counter for hours and days and months and years, never really being able to commune with their people, right? And then Adam's like, I'm going to get all these people together and we're going to have so much fun and we're going to eat so much cheese and we're going to learn so much about it. And it just, it took off. He's grown this into an amazing experience for cheese lovers around the world, around this country, Jewish, not Jewish, you know, just Mubama, Mr. Moo. That's his, <laughs> his title is Mr. Moo. And his mantra is Mubama, which is the sounds that each of those three animals make. And he's done a wonderful thing. This is just the best, like, non sequitur tangent we've ever got on on this show. Idan, I think we can just replay this whole segment for Shavuot and just be done with it. That's <laughs> so funny. I'll email you my uh, family recipe for uh, noodle kugel. It'll be great. And you need to give us a cheese pairing for the noodle kugel. The noodle kugel is the cheese pairing. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, they go the other way. <laughs> I mean, maybe a wine pairing. We, we do the other thing. Cider and beer pair incredibly well with cheese. I think better than wine in a lot of cases. That's a whole nother tangent we could go off in. That's another day. All right. So we'll save that one for another day. This has been one of my favorite Midrashic Mixology segments of all time. We have unfortunately reached our last segment. We could keep talking about Torah or cheese or both, really mostly cheese forever. But I do have to say, this has been such a fun episode, like just a great conversation. I'm sorry that Amanda had to miss it. But like, if you want to come back for Shavuot, like, please do. Cheese is awesome. Bring your friends. So we do have kind of a thing we do on the show. We ask a question of all of us because we spend all the time asking you questions that we want to kind of expand the thing. So Jill, Idan, in Kitavo, we spend so much time talking about bringing the choicest first fruits as tithes. If you were going to choose one fruit that you think would be the best gift to give, or frankly to receive, what would that fruit be? Idan, you seem really excited about this question, so we're going to start with you. Oh, definitely. I mean, I feel very strongly about my favorite fruit, and I have for a long time. That is pineapple. I love pineapple so dearly. When I was a kid, we'd go to my grandma's apartment for Friday night dinner, and uh, it'd be me, my mom, my brother, my sister, my grandma, and some of my grandma's friends from her building. And well, there might be some sort of like sweet dessert, but there was always a bowl of fruit salad. There'd always be pineapple in it. And, you know, even me as a young kid in the five to 10 year old range was so self-aware about my love of pineapple 
that um, it became a regular occurrence that we'd hit a certain point in the evening where we'd say, does anybody want any more pineapple because Idan's going to finish it? <laughs> and sometimes I would say that, and sometimes my mom would say, hey, everybody, I think Idan's going to finish off the pineapple, so if you want any more, now's your chance. Otherwise, it'll be gone in a second. <laughs> anyway, pineapple, also on pizza. Incredible. All right. So, Jill, it sounds like you have some opinions. Do you want to talk about your opinions about, I mean, I guess you could talk about pineapple on pizza, but more importantly, what fruit is the best gift? Yeah. So this is like asking me what my favorite cheese is. There's so many qualifiers. What time of year is it? You know, what region am I in? Some cheeses are seasonal, like Rogue River Blue. Like that only comes out in the fall. That's going to be the cheese I bring if that's going to be the one. So yeah, asking me what kind of fruit, I don't know, like, is it spring? Is it fall? Are we in the tropics? Are we like, where are we? Like, if you ask me spring, I would say, you know, that perfect strawberry. Oh, first strawberries. Not like the very first, like the early risers, they're kind of still a little, eh. but when they start coming in, if you haven't had a strawberry, like in your own little strawberry patch, straight off, still sun-kissed in your mouth, like so good. So, so good. But a lot of people can't do seeds. You know, they don't like the seeds on the outside. I get it. Blueberries are wonderful. Right now, like it's the tail end of watermelon season where you still might get like a really good one. But like it's kind of tapering off a bit. So like I might not bring a watermelon right now. It's impossible. You have to give me more parameters here. I can't. I can't. I'll try to be more specific next time. <laughs> You know, for me, I kind of want to cheat and say a bottle of wine, but I get that that's not like really a fruit. It's a fruit product, I guess. But, you know, I feel like anything that you grow or pick yourself is like really just there's something meaningful about it. I remember my dad used to have, you know, we grew up in the suburbs. We had a couple of like raised garden beds that, you know, we didn't grow a ton but certainly not enough to like live off of. You know, we never got a full meal out of the garden, but it was always a really exciting thing when we got to, you know, have our own cucumbers or our own tomatoes. And it was always, you know, some of my best memories are going to Cape Cod during the summer and picking blueberries. So I think anything you pick or you grow yourself is really up there. Love blueberries. Blueberries are up there, especially if you make them into a pie. Love blueberry pie. Anyway... Um, we're going off on another fruit tangent, and I feel like we could go on a lot of food tangents. I'm wondering if people are noticing a theme here. But before we go, Jill, if people wanted to find or follow you or just continue the conversation with you, how would they do that? Where can we find you? You know, I used to be pretty, quote unquote, big, big small fish and out in the community a little bit more when I was, you know, doing Gone Project and things like that. Starting this new gig, I'm going to be pretty heavy into cheese making the next couple of months. So I'm not super available, but I do occasionally and probably with this job, we'll be posting to my Instagram account, which I started during something called the Cheddar Wars, which is a friendly competition between cheese shops to sell as much of the beautiful cheddars that come out of the UK, specifically from Neil's Yard Dairy. So I started it for work and occasionally I'll still post some pretty incredible cheese related content. There. My handle, I believe, is Cheese Camp Director Jill. So you can find me there. You guys found me through Jewish Geography Game. You know, I'm probably not more than one maximum, two people removed from whoever you are. But Facebook, if we're friends on Facebook, great. If I don't know who you are, probably not the best way to do it. But figure out who we're connected to and 
they'll get you in touch. It's phenomenal. All right. Before we say goodbye, any last thoughts, comments, concerns, or jokes? I will say, you know, hearkening back a little to when I spoke about my frustration about, you know, where we are as a people in food and environmental justice work, my parting words would be, in a, you know, train your people as community organizers, build your power, organize money, organize people, join, build coalitions with other organizations that are on the ground doing the hard, hard work towards the things that we talked about before, right? Housing, food, water, all of these very prevalent issues that are happening right now. Because if you turn up to their action, to that organization's action against the coal ash plants or against the predatory lending of the banks, um, Farm Workers United, right? Raising a penny, a penny, a single penny, right? Per pound, I think it's per pound, of tomatoes is enough to make a financial impact on that community in terms of being able to be of subsistence. That's the wrong word, but you get what I'm trying to say. <laughs> to live. I think that's the most impactful thing that we can extrapolate from, you know, what we're seeing in this Parsha and in many of our Parshas. But train your committees as community organizers, build coalitions, hit the pavement, target people to change legislation, to do the things that need to be done, to basically put our proverbial and literal money where our mouth is when we talk about justice, when we talk about repairing of the world, when we talk about treatment of animals. When we talk about these things, we can't just be talk. We have to do the work. Debarti. Idan, I'm really sorry that Amanda couldn't be here with us for this like really awesome conversation. She probably wouldn't have let us talk about cheese as much as we did. She likes cheese, but like I feel like that was just a really long time that we spent. She probably keeps us on track a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what was this uh, a few weeks ago when I wasn't there and y'all kept, you know, like, kept the intro going longer and longer than I probably would have let you? It's just one of those situations where she would have kept us on track. But hey, we're, like, we're talking about beer and cheese and Midwest and what else could be such a good time to talk about? could not agree more. And, you know, that's what this Torah portion is really all about is those first fruits and those gifts that we give. It's our most prized possessions. It's the things that we grow with our hands and giving it up for the community. It's something really special and really powerful. Yeah, it really is. I mean, we know how special and important food is to us as a people. And I think that just really proves the point further, right? That if we find food so important, but we're willing to take not just like a portion of it, but like the first of it to give to the being at the center of our religion, right? Like that's like as holy and central to our religion as it could possibly be. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the first blessings I learned as a child were, you know, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz, who brings forth bread from the earth and Borei Pri Hagafen, creator of the fruit of the vine which is really for wine, but also grape juice, really anything that grows on a vine is totally legit. You know, I think it's something just so foundational for us is this idea of food. And, you know, we all come together around it. We all come together around food and around that community table, whether it's Bikurim or it's, you know, a Passover meal uh, or, you know, Sukkot eating in the sukkah. 
or, you know, like I said, bringing back the cheese for Shavuot. Let's go. Just replay that segment. Nothing else. It'll be great. And I'm realizing right now, as I say that, that I just named the three festivals, those three main pilgrimage festivals. They're all harvest holidays. That's the whole point. Like she said, it we're on an agrarian calendar. That's the whole point of the thing. What a weird coincidence. <laughs> right. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. You know, it's kind of interesting to think like I don't think of Jews as people who are like stereotypically farmers like that's like a that's a weird thing in my head Jewish farmers like that's an uncommon profession for a Jew but that's like really where we come from like totally from an agrarian society an agrarian civilization that really that's the basis of so much of our culture so much of our tradition you know what's really interesting I mean two things come to mind when you say that one and this is a much smaller thought I had. I know that there are around the world, especially like in, in America, I know that there are many farms that are either A, run by Jews, or at the least observe some Jewish observances, I guess. I know that there's at least one farm in Wisconsin that observes Shemitah, and that's a thing. But the second bigger thought that comes to mind is in Israel, we have these communities, right? We have moshavs and kibbutzes that are these traditionally agriculturally based communities that share their communes that are based around agriculture. Now, I will say modern day, there are actually a few of them that are almost tech-based in a way. I mean, some of the quote-unquote crops that they grow, quote-unquote grow, are solar panel power, right? And stuff like that. But there are so many of them around the country of Israel, and they all started, the movement started as an agriculture thing. And I think that's tied to this, right? I mean, yeah, that's really so much of it. I mean, it's making the desert bloom. Like, that was a rallying cry. It still is a rallying cry for Israel, for Zionism, for it's this miraculous thing that, like, let's take this tiny sliver of land that's, like, mostly desert between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, you know, the only place in the Middle East that doesn't have oil, and let's do something amazing with it, something miraculous. You know, I, we think about when the spies, when the scouts first entered the land and they came back with fruit and they said, this place is awesome. There's fruit like that's great. That's so cool. That's our connection to the land is through food. And in general, like I think so much of culture, even outside of Judaism, is based around food. When you think about any community's culture, I think one of the first cultural markers you think of is cuisine. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Like, when anyone just like mentions a culture, just like no matter the conversation, the first place at least my mind goes, maybe it's just because I love food, but also it could be because I'm Jewish. That means I love food. Or it could mean that this is just what the general thing is, is that if you say, oh, how about Italy? The first thing you think of is Italian food. Like the first thing that comes to mind is pasta and pizza. Like there's no way it's not. And like it's so interesting that cuisine is the way we even think of cultures and regions and everything, we think of them by how their food is before we even consider anything else that they have and do. It's very weird. And I think such a huge part of that, though, like a huge reason for that, probably not the only reason, but a huge reason for that is that food is a universal language. It's something we can all understand. We can all get behind. And sure, some flavors are different and it, some things might not appeal to us. And culturally, there might be some cultural barriers of you guys eat what? But there's something that we all have in common at that like really base level of I can understand at least on a base level something about this group of people because I understand what they eat. 
I think food's awesome. I think we could keep talking about food for such a long time. But I think, you know, if Amanda were here, she'd be like, all right, guys, wrap it up. So I think that's probably what we should do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say goodnight and l'chaim. L'chaim. I'm Jill Zinoff, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist, Lactaid Not Provided.